it's so important to put stuff out there into the world, whether it's short form on Twitter or longer form blog posts, because once you start building up that audience and getting that feedback, I think iterating on it and continuing to think about those ideas and refine those ideas, just make them that much stronger. Welcome to another episode of Hype Fury Presents. In this episode, I talked to Ryan Stevens. Ryan started with side hustling over 13 years ago. The job market was bad and he knew he needed to supplement his income. By being just a little bit ahead of the pack, he landed jobs where others from his class didn't. In this episode, you'll learn how important it is to have a side hustle and how easy it is to get it started. But even more important, how it lands opportunities in your life. My name is Yannick, co-founder of Hype Fury, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Right, Ryan, we've known each other for a little bit on, on Twitter. Tell our audience who you are and what people should know about you. You bet. So Ryan Stevens, I've been writing online since probably 2008, I think. Still have a day job, still kicking with that. Love my day job, love what I do. And so I have not abandoned that yet. But one of those guys that I just can't help myself, always have a little side hustle going and just love learning from and connecting with super sharp people on Twitter. Cool, cool. Yeah, and so you're currently you're you're working in the like the medical world. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so my primary position is to work with for profits to fundraise on behalf of a cancer institute. I work at the number one cancer institute in the in the world, actually, and so it's a very gratifying job. Get a lot of gratification. I know that it's having impact. It's a very tangible impact. We partner with these companies. We fundraise money. The money goes to help cancer prevention, cancer research, cancer education, cancer treatment. So I get a lot of gratification out of that day job. I'm at a place in my career where I have a lot of autonomy. I have a strong team. I like the work that I do. It's great insurance. I have two kids and a third on the way. So it's actually interesting. I, people ask me often, you know, why do you not go out on your own? I think there's a lot of reasons in there, but I think part of it is just the reality is when you get to a certain point in your career, you also reach a certain comfort level. And I'm at a place where I'm unwilling to give a lot of that up to go out on my own. And so I think we will see Ryan keep his career for at least till, you know, kids college is paid for. And then after that, you might see Ryan retire and turn the side hustle into a full-time gig. Cause I don't have any plans to stop working until I'm like really old and get dementia. Cool, cool. And so tell us a little bit because you work for a for-profit. That's a bit different than when you have a foundation that wants to, you know, collect money. How do you work on that? Yeah, so it is a for-profit, but it's it's a state institution. And so, yeah, it's not a nonprofit, but a lot of the nonprofits get money and then give it to us to do things with because we're the ones on the front line treating the cancer. Yeah. And so how does that work? What's like the biggest hook people want to give money for? You know, I, I can come up with a, a bunch of reasons, of course, but tell me. Yeah, there's a lot of different reasons. I mean, I, I think it's the level in, in which you're giving as well. A lot of companies that we work with, cancer is a pillar of giving because it affects their employee base and their community. And they want to, you know, that's one, especially as prevalent as this is now, I think one in two men one in three women get cancer in their lifetime. So you think about an employee base, you want to help them prevent it because that keeps your employees insurance costs down. Um, but you also just don't want your employees to have to go through that and, and how challenging that is and how disruptive that is to their lives. So I think with the companies we work with, that's a big reason why they give for us. You know, really, really wealthy people can see, can give a lot of money and move the needle on actual research that, you know, may transform the industry where, you know, some of the things that 
is happening with immunotherapy right now. People that previously would have passed away are now surviving stage four metastasis cancer, um, which is just incredible. And then, you know, there's another level of people that just had a family member or, you know, had somebody pass away or be adversely affected by cancer. And that's their way of giving back and helping. Yeah, nice. And is like the work you do in the, in the medical field, was that also one of the reasons that you created your blog and the fact that you're really focused on mental health for men and women alike, probably. But I see that at least in your blog where you talk about, you know, suicide, mental issues, stuff like that. Was, was that one of the reasons or how did you transition to, hey, I'm going to start that? Yeah, no. So just to give you a little context. So when I was in graduate school, that was like 2008. And so all of my peers were talking about the four P's of marketing, you know, product and placement and pricing. And nobody was talking about this emerging space, which was, you know, digital and social media. Um, and so I figured that was a way to separate myself from really smart peers in graduate school, candidly, that I'm going to compete against for jobs. And so I started my first blog, which at the time was called Ryan Stevens Marketing. And I've since expanded to just ryanstevens.me so that it has a broader lens. But the intent was very much to separate myself from my peers around helping businesses and personal brands and, and athletes at the time figure out how to leverage digital and social media. And then I worked for a sports technology company for a little while. And when I got back into healthcare, those things are important to me. But for me, what I saw was just, you know, men falling behind women in a lot of ways. And my wife and I had just had our son in 2016. And he's going to have two parents that love him and, and have pretty good financial means, etc. So, you know, he's not starting in the dugout. He's kind of starting on second base. But simultaneously, we just like, what are the things that we would want him to know to prevent him getting lost in the shuffle that men are getting lost. You hear all the time about men still being adolescents, despite being grown, not taking care of their kids, playing Nintendo, not wanting a real job, all these things. And so we were like, how can we mitigate that with advice for him? And then we realized very quickly the advice we were giving quote unquote to him was broadly applicable to all men and to women too, to some extent. And so that's where dialed in men and that writing came from. Yeah, interesting. So let's go back a little bit and go more into details because it's not every day that, you know, somebody who just graduated also starts a sort of side hustle. Most people just go to, you know, the day job, normal routine, and then probably, you know, five years in, they start thinking about, hmm, there could be something else here. I need to do something else. You started something, you know, away from the four Ps, more into, you know, digital marketing, I guess. Why did you decide to do that versus just, you know, staying the straight line like everybody does? So part of it is when I came out of grad school, it was 2008, which is like right after the market had crashed. And so for reference, the graduating class from the program the year before us had like an average starting salary of like 65,000, 68,000, somewhere right in there, which was what I anticipated when I made the decision to go to grad school is, you know, that's a great starting salary for a 23 year old or whatever I would have been at the time. Then the market crashed and I got a job making like 40,000, but a lot of my peers didn't even get jobs. And so for me, one, I just wanted some additional cash flow because I wasn't in an environment where I was educated on what things cost. And I was moving from a small town in Texas, in East Texas, to Charlotte, North Carolina to start my career. I was like, can I afford this apartment? Can I afford groceries? Can I afford to have fun? I really didn't know. Um, and I very quickly realized that most people 
spend money frivolous, frivolously and 40,000 is actually not bad if you're single, you know, unless you're in the epicenter of like New York City or, or Silicon Valley. I genuinely didn't know. And so I, I wanted to have some side hustle money. I wanted to learn was just a big part of it is I thought it was a good way to expedite my learning. You know, there's only certain things and projects, et cetera, that your boss is going to give you in a career. And this is a way I could explore other interests, other projects, connect with really smart people. At the time, I connected with somebody a lot of listeners may be familiar with here is Lewis House. And he was literally living on his sister's couch and trying to figure out how to make these LinkedIn networking event works. And now, you know, he's huge and has really blown up and we connected at that time. And so I was writing sports marketing articles on on how to leverage social media for your sports marketing for his blog way back then. And so it just kind of evolved from there. And for me, it was just a way to really connect with and learn from really smart people. Cool. It's a bit the same as I did. Well, I I started at a bank with a, as a trainee, but I really hated it. You know, I quit after nine months, and then I started at a digital agency, and everybody had side projects, and I set up some websites as well. And then, yeah, I'm still making money from that, which is like ten years ago. That's uh, it's cool. Why did you pick uh, the sports marketing topics? What went on in your mind to to pick that? Yeah. So I think I wanted to be a sports journalist at some point in college and then realized that journalists don't get paid anything until they're like, you know, 10, 12 years of their career. Like you literally go to some small town, Texas, and like, you know, put the local machine pitch t-ball box scores in your newspaper. Right. So, but I was still passionate about sports. I played uh, collegiate baseball still at a point in my life where I kind of looked up to certain athletes and things and was like, Oh man, I, I would like to connect with them, et cetera. And so this woman, the CEO of this sports marketing company, she actually came to speak to our grad program. And she asked, you know, is anybody on Twitter? And I was the only person on Twitter. And she and I just kind of started talking about that. And so I put together, it was like a PDF that was like hyperlinked. That was like all these things you need to know about Twitter. It was so rudimentary in retrospect. But back then it was really out in front of the curve, I think. And she was like, this is excellent. I want to hire you full time. And so she brought me out full time. And one of her clients was Shaquille O'Neal. He was at the end of his career and he was doing like the random acts of Shackness where he would like use Twitter to be like, I'm going to be in this mall and the first one to touch me gets my shoes. You know, she worked on stuff like that. And then it was fascinating too, because the other side of it, and the thing I think that people don't think about often with social media is so often we use it, we use it to learn, but we also use it to broadcast. And I don't think enough people use it as a listening tool to do like market research and to learn. And that was one of the things that we did and we thought was really fascinating was companies and organizations and sports programs would hire us to listen to the chatter on social and kind of get a sense of like, what's being said about us? How do we mitigate that if it's bad? How do we amplify that if it's good? And so we did a lot of that with like social listening platforms before they were really as robust as they are now. Interesting. And I think one thing you said is really interesting and very underrated. You had a Twitter profile, but you probably didn't have thousands of followers. You might have had a couple of dozen probably back then, but you were like just maybe one, two, three percent ahead of the rest. And that's why you landed that job. Yeah. Well, and when I started to work for her, I realized really quickly she totally had like shiny object syndrome. So like any new thing that came out, she was like fascinated by, but it just so happened at the time Twitter was kind of new. And yeah, I probably had, I don't know, 400 followers maybe at the time. I also did a lot of the, like, I will follow you if you follow me back. So 
that was really my first, like at one point I remember it, I was following like 8,000 people and had like 9,000 following me. And I was like, this is terrible. I can't follow anything. And I deleted everybody and just added back the ones that I missed. And when I did, I think my followers went from like 9,000 to like 4,500. And I was like, see, they were just following me because I was following them. So like, what's the point of this? But those were certainly the early days before we had like actual good growth strategies and things like that. We were still tweeting like pictures of our breakfast, right? I mean, I never did that, but that was a thing. Yeah, so it goes to show that you really only need to be, you know, this ahead, people can see, but like a couple of percentage points ahead of the rest and you can land a job. And that's so important, especially if you want to be an entrepreneur or if you want to land a job anyway. You just have to be a little bit in front of the pack and you can uh, yeah, land your job. All right. So you started in the sports marketing and then when you had your son, like five years ago, you started dialed in men because it's like, you know, you're creating like an online book for him when I pass away or when, you know, there's a lot of stuff for you to learn. Why did you choose to do that? Yeah. I mean, I think that was, you know, the intent is that I think our jobs as fathers is to prepare our kids to live in a world without us. And you hope that you're in it for as long as possible, but you want to prepare them to live in a world without you. And so that was really the intent is like, I had this overwhelming desire at the time to impart my knowledge, but he's like two. So he has no comprehension <laughs> of like what I'm trying to tell him yet. I mean, now he's four and a half and he still doesn't get a lot of these lessons. So, and he may, you know, eventually get to him and be like, you have no idea what you're talking about. But in my experience, like, you definitely think your parents have no idea what they're talking about. And then you get become an adult and you're like, oh, not only do they know what they're talking about, but they have my best interests in heart. So I think for me, it was a way to here's lessons that I would like to give to you or for you to have. And if something ever happens to me, God forbid, you know, here's a tiny slice of like the type of advice that I can give you. And I just think I'm stronger via the written word versus like a bunch of YouTube videos. So that was really the rationale for that. And then as we worked on that project, you know, to your point with the mental health stuff, like men die five years earlier than women. Men's suicide rates are going up at an alarming rate. 90% of inmates are men. You know, one in five children only live with women. Testosterone levels are falling precipitously. Lots of things, I think, are going on with that space. And so it, it was something that was passionate to me and something that I'm still concerned about for him. There's this I think the pendulum always swings. But right now, I feel like, especially in the corporate world, the, the pendulum is very anti-men and, and, and just being candid, anti-Caucasian men. I think there's a balance there where diversity, inclusion and equity are very important. But also, you know, it's not being, you know, just adverse Caucasian men either. And so I'm trying to give him the tools to navigate some of that. Yeah. yeah. But what do you think are the causes of all those no stats you name like men uh, die earlier they have you know uh, they're in jail more often why does that happen you think yeah i mean i think that the in jail more often i think that's probably biology to some extent i think generally speaking if you look at k through 12 females generally speaking broadly speaking obviously there's exceptions to every rule are much better at sitting still being quiet following the rules, those kinds of things. The way K through 12 is set up right now, that behavior is more rewarded. There's certainly some incredible female entrepreneurs. I'm thinking about the woman from Bumble who just became a billionaire, right? But you know, if you look at a lot of the top tier entrepreneurs, the people that have the most wealth in the world, it's men. Disproportionately at the top and disproportionately at the bottom. And I think some of that is biologically driven and some of it is societally driven. 
And so I think the key is, you know, how do we arm men with the tools to be towards that top end and not fall victim to, you know, biology and the fact that it's easy. I think too, man, this is getting outside my subject matter expertise, but I I think too, from a biological standpoint, point, men produce sperm, which are plentiful. Women produce eggs, which are more rare. And, you know, there's something hardwired in there too, where maybe as a result of that, men are a little more expendable, you know? And so throughout history too, that's been true and it should be true, but men are more often likely to go to war and die. So there's things like that where I just think that like, I'm trying to make sure that my son doesn't fall victim to the outliers, especially, you know, the one that's adverse. There are certainly men that are more capable of answering that question than me, but that's my take on it. What might be interesting is because you're on Twitter, you get almost direct feedback on everything you talk about. So I'm wondering how you use Twitter to, you know, feed your blog. You know, you can probably test out things and and see, oh, this is getting a lot of traction. I need to talk about this on the blog. How do you do that? Yeah, that's actually great. And so I know you like concrete examples on this podcast from listening to it. And so one of the things that we do, my wife and I have a spreadsheet of tweets that like go semi-viral, if you will. And we capture those. And, and typically those are really tightly formed theses, if you will. And in many cases, they're not like a definitive answer because a lot of times if it's like, if everybody says that's inherently true, they'll just like it and go on. But if there's a little bit of nuance and like maybe controversy in there, I think people like it and discuss it and, and it has the ability to go a little viral. And so we capture those in an Excel document and go back through and say, will any of these make compelling blog posts? You know, is this idea something we can expand upon as a way to like really dive into a longer form piece that makes sense to people? And so that, that's definitely one of the things we do. And to your point, I think it's it's so important to put stuff out there into the world, whether it's short form on Twitter or longer form blog posts, because once you start building up that audience and getting that feedback, I think iterating on it and continuing to think about those ideas and refine those ideas, just make them that much stronger or make you change your mind, which is something that, you know, I always welcome too. is like, I'm completely willing to change my mind in the face of new evidence. In fact, I think if you change your mind more often, you're more likely to be right. You know, people that are really stubborn and never change their mind are going to be wrong a lot. And so I'm, I'm always willing to change my mind in the face of new evidence. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, people need to try more. I get a bunch of people and you probably get to say, what, what do we write about? How do I start? And you just, well, just start, you know, I've, I've created, I don't know, well, I have right now like over a hundred websites that, you know, bring in passive income. I just start with one and created, I don't know, 10, 20 articles. And I saw that like one or two blew up and then I knew, okay, I need to create more stuff like that. And I think that's so important, just, you know, getting started, getting the work done and then, yeah, see what works. Yeah. I think it's so, it's tough because it sounds tried or cliche. It's like, just start. And people are like, ah, you know, I think there are so many people, me included sometimes are paralyzed by that fear of A, starting and and then B, putting it out there and sharing it with the world. But I think that's the key. And I, I don't know about you, but like for me, sometimes it's really surprising what blows up, right? Like sometimes you have something you're like, man, that is, that's the bee's knees. It's going to do so well. And it's like, womp, womp. And then something that you literally just like had a thought in your head and like tweeted it real fast, like blows up. And so I think I always tell people like, it's about shots on goal. Like take as many shots as possible. You'll be surprised some of the ones that you make, but the more you take, the more likelihood you are to make some. 
Yeah, exactly. That's your pin tweet right there. You know, that Picasso created, I don't know, thousands of um, paintings and just a couple of were really, you know, famous. And the other thing, I think too often we think other people are going to be like, oh my gosh, he failed in public. He failed. Let's ridicule that person. But everybody's so busy with their own life. Like they mostly just remember your wins and they really don't care if you fail. And if you fail and you're courageous enough to get back up, I think people have a lot of respect and admiration for that as well. Exactly. And they probably won't even see your failure, you know. People are worried about pressing that publish button on their blog, but, you know, the first 10 articles, nobody will probably even see. It's just for yourself. You're writing it for yourself and not for anybody else. Yeah, no, that's a couple of these guys that I've listened to recently, like Danny Miranda's podcast, which is doing a really, he's doing an awesome job. Ali, I can't pronounce his last name. He's huge on YouTube now, but he was like, look, I just wanted to do a hundred videos. And I knew they were going to suck, but I had to get the hundred done because once I got the hundred done, I was going to learn. I was going to be out there, you know, that kind of thing. And Danny's doing the same thing with his podcast. And, you know, I've seen other smart people say, you know, sometimes the key to growth is to overwhelm the algorithm. And I think there's some truth to that. If you see some of these guys that like really blow up, it's like, how do you tweet this much? (laughs) Um, I, I can't wrap my head around it, but it's true. Like they're overwhelming the algorithm and it just takes one or two of those to really pop off. And what's also interesting is I think a lot of people, they keep starting, you know, just, uh, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. Instead, what I did, I, I don't know, like one or two years ago, I've had my domain name, my name is a domain name for ages. And then all of a sudden I was like, I'm, I'm going to do something with that. So, and instead of saying to myself, I'm going to write one blog post, I said to myself, I'm going to take 30 days and I'm going to write a hundred thousand words in those 30 days. So what that does is instead of me saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to start with this. I just said, I'm going to, well, really, really, really start. I'm going to get a big goal, which is still, you know, pretty doable in 30 days. You have to write a lot, but it's still doable. And once you're done with that, you really have something, you've really created something instead of, you know, just one or two articles and then it dies down and then you move on to the next thing. And yeah. What I really like about what you just said, and it it mirrors, again, stuff that other smart people say. I think it's Elon Musk that's like, people come to him and like, hey, I have this idea. And he's like, well, how long will it take? And they're like, three years. And he's like, great, do it in three months. And so I I think there's a lot of merit to that, to like, what resources do you need? You might surprise yourself. You might not get it done in three months, but if you don't, if you aim for that, you're probably going to accomplish a lot more than you think you would have versus like, hey, let's just plot along for three years doing a little bit here and there. Like, what if you, to your point, wrote a hundred thousand and then you can extract a lot of stuff out of that. So I think there's a lot of merit to that approach. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. All right. So. We're probably the same age, by the way. Are you 36? Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, I'm 36. So I was just calculating 2008. I, I was trying to do the math. I, I know what year I was born. I never know how old I am. Like there's – once you run out of milestone, like, you know, you worry about 16 because you can drive, you know, 18 and 21 so you can drink in the U.S. And then 25 is kind of a milestone. But then like after 30, it's like, I don't, I don't know how old I am. I have to figure this out. Cool. All right. So let's go back to the the Twitter part. You started back in 2008, you know, had a couple of hundred followers. Then you did a lot of follow for follow. So you gained, you know, thousands of followers. Then you were like, whoa, this is too much. I'm going to unfollow everybody. Back at four and a half thousand. Now, I want to run through what things you did that really saw you get traction. Yeah. So I think a lot of this advice ends up being cliche too. (laughs) And and there's certainly people more qualified to talk about this than I am. I know there's 
guys like Wise Connector and Life Math Money and, and other folks that have put out, you know, Oliver Canteen has his big, huge free course. I think the number one thing you have to do is provide value. And I know that's cliche. And I know people do provide value in a vacuum for a long time before they blow up. But I, I do think that's the key. I think people try to be too broad. They try to be everything to everybody. And I think you're better off really honing in on a specific niche that you want. And for me, that's evolved over time. You know, it was really like, I'm talking about social media and sports for a long time. And I had a ton of those followers. And then when I moved into healthcare, it was like, I'm at the intersection of healthcare and technology. And I had a bunch of those followers. And then now it's evolved to like, you know, there's a thousand guys telling, you know, 20 somethings how to get rich and how to get jacked. So I try not to compete there. I try to talk more about, you know, fatherhood and how do you navigate fatherhood in a career and a side hustle and and those kinds of things. And so I think if you have a tighter niche, you will find that your people, quote unquote, your people will gravitate to you. And after that, it's much easier to broaden out. I think a very tactical thing that most people inherently know, but good quality comments under popular accounts that you like and admire, adding value to those accounts is a good way to get retweeted. Getting retweeted puts you in front of a lot of other people. So that helps. And then to your point, it's, it's you know, we've already talked about it, shots on goal. Once or twice, I've gone like really, really viral. One time I had a, it was a thread about six ways to be a better teammate in your marriage. And it just, I mean, it was literally on the Twitter trending topics. And I think I got 6,000 new followers for that. And then when you kind of get that momentum, you, t- you have to take advantage of it. you know. And, and I, I actually tweet quite a bit more right after something like that happens because there's a bunch of new people getting acclimated to your content and that you want to give them an opportunity to follow and see what you're all about. The only other thing I would say that I don't think enough people take advantage of is, is Twitter advanced search. You know, Use Twitter advanced search to find topics that you're interested about the people that are talking about those topics that are having quality tweets and emulate people that are just being successful. Find two or three. Don't try to like look at everybody, but do a Twitter list of like three to five people that are just really successful um, at the kinds of things you want to do and just really watch and follow their cadence, the way they respond, the way they tweet, what they link to, those kinds of things. And I think you can emulate them on your way to success for yourself as well. So let's say you're looking for accounts that also talk about fatherhood and how to be a good husband. How would you go about using advanced search to find those people? I think it's advanced.twitter, search.twitter.com. Anyway, you can search advanced Twitter on Google and it'll come up. But you know what I do is I, I'll go in and I'll pick a topic that I want to see. There's a number of different filters and I'll look at maybe the last two months and then I'll sort by you know at least minimum 25 likes, minimum 50 likes, minimum 25 retweets, something like that. And you will see all the most popular tweets that come up that feature those words that you are looking for. And invariably, you will find not only content that is resonating with the types of things you want to tweet about that you can spin off of and put your own spin on, but also accounts that are really successful. And and you'll see some of them that just had one that got lucky, but you'll see others where, you know, if you were looking for fatherhood, for example, you know, the Save Your Sons account might come up because they've had a bunch of big hits lately. And then you can go specific and look at theirs and kind of emulate their strategy and see what works. But that's a really tactical thing that I think not a lot of people take advantage of enough. Yeah, exactly. I I think people are too focused on what's in their head versus looking around. And don't be afraid to steal ideas. Don't steal tweets. You know, don't literally copy people's tweets, but definitely look at what's happening. You can always learn from other people 
you know, David Perel also says, hey, don't be afraid to steal ideas, man, because you have such a unique world, you know, your education, your surroundings, your family, that all adds to what you can bring on Twitter or in your blog. So couldn't agree more. And and James Clear, who is just a phenomenal person at Twitter, um, among other things, his book Atomic Habits is excellent, but he talks all the time about everything you see right now is a remix, you know, and Austin Cleon has a great book, Still Like an Artist. And so I couldn't agree more. Like, obviously, we're not going to plagiarize anybody's stuff, but everything's a remix. So take something that you like, that you admire, and then put your own unique spin on it. And I think that's a, a great way to, to build content. From your Twitter account, you actually funnel in people to your newsletter on Dialed In Men. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, why you do that, what works, and what in the end, you probably have some kind of a sales funnel that leads to, you know, maybe a course or anything else? Runs through that. Yeah. So that was a random thing that I saw somebody else trying a while back. And I actually had like really sharp people reach out to me and be like, does this actually work? Because, you know, I think at the time when people started dropping their link right below popular tweets, you know, most people were still using like shadow boxes, you know, and drop downs and things like that. So, yeah, it has been the primary drive. Twitter has been the primary driver of my newsletter probably for the last 18 months. And I probably should automate it using Hype Fury. I do not right now. I know people that do. And I think that's a very smart strategy to like, hey, if it gets X amount of likes, you know, drop this tweet in here. But yeah, if a tweet really resonates, I will craft a tweet around that tweet's content and say like, hey, I share content like this more long form on my newsletter. You can sign that up here. And that that landing page has over 50% conversion rate, which just goes to show you like when people read something that resonates, they are kind of primed to opt in. And so, you know, I think that's really worked for me. I do not, I am sad to say, and Jose Rosado would shame me. Um, I do not have this great funnel on the back end. He's been telling me for like 18 months, like, what are you doing? You are so bad at monetization. And I'm like, I know it goes back to this having a career and, and this level of comfort, you know, but I am working on an autoresponder series that's almost done that will provide some really valuable content once people log in. My wife and I are revamping our first ebook to make it just have a little broader scope and lens and also just to make it much more aesthetically pleasing. We threw this ebook together really quickly after that viral tweet storm that I've just mentioned about the teammates in the marriage. And it did pretty well. But I mean, it was basically like reading a Word document because we were trying to take advantage of the momentum. And so we threw it together in like two and a half days. So we've really gone back through and tried to aesthetically redesign that. And to your point about like just shipping and, and not being paralyzed by fear, I think Part of me is like, I've wanted all of this to be perfect. And so I have not, you know, gotten things out there as fast as they should. I have this really old video and Jose looked at it. and was like, no, that's too old. Don't use that. And I was like, but I'm, I'm being paralyzed. I just got to get this out here. And my wife watched it. was like, yeah, it's like you're watching a VHS tape. We, we need to at least make it DVD quality. It doesn't have to be Blu-ray. So I need to re-record this video. And then my autoresponder series is done. And then at the end of that autoresponder series, I do have plans to like at some point have a community or a course for fathers that are really trying to optimize their career, their relationships, their wealth, and their wellness. And it will be kind of broad by design, but that's where I'm, I'm trying to head with that. We'll see what happens if, you know, how much free time we have with three kids and a big career. Might have to get it launched before that third kid shows up. Definitely, definitely. What I do, I just, we just launched a course with Hype Fury and with a seven day video course as well. I recorded it all. 
but I still need to add something. But I just we, we just decide, hey, we're gonna hit play. We're gonna start selling it, and then you know, I, I right now I have I have still five days left before the first person reaches the end of the video course, and then they need to get that. So you know, it doesn't matter. But I I have to get it done. That's how I work. But yeah. That's a nice constraint. Yeah. So at one point, I had this really great idea for this ebook that I was going to write around some content that I had studied for a really long time. And so I pre-sold it and had quite a few people buy it. And then my daughter was born and I just got so busy and I totally ended up like refunding everybody. I was like, I was giving them like live updates. I was trying to build in public. The intent was well. And, and I was just like, look, guys, I am failing on so many levels here. And I was just like, here, everybody, your money back. I don't want your money hanging over my head. And so I, I do think that's a good strategy to like force you to get to work. But it was just making me feel guilty. And I was like, here's your money back. <laughs> yeah, I understand. If you're already like all the way up there, you know, taxed with all your time, then you just have to make decisions. Yeah. I feel like it was the, the right thing to do. And I hope they saw it that way too. And not as a huge letdown. Yeah, I think so too. Cool. And so what are your plans for like the, the coming few years, you know? To be completely candid, it's what happens in my day job in that career will have, you know, as that career grows, it gets harder and harder to do a lot of stuff on the side. And that's just the reality of this. Some of it is going to depend on remote work. You know, if remote work is really here to stay as it relates to my career um, and there's an opportunity for my family to get further out of the city where the cost of living is less, then I'm a little less worried about career growth and I can think more about side hustle stuff. And this is just like really, really candid for listeners here. You know, if I continue to get promoted and we continue to live around the epicenter of the city, it's just not going to afford itself a lot of opportunity for side hustle stuff. If there is an opportunity for more side hustle stuff, one of the things I really want to do is really a course for men and coaching for men that are fathers, that are busy, that you know, want to dial in on a specific aspect of their life, whether it's their fitness, their finances, their wellness, or their relationships. I think there's a way to do that individually with each of those respective branches, but also holistically too. And I, I'm really a fan of cohort-based courses and where that's going. I'm not a huge fan of these courses, you know, like a MOOC where you sit and watch all these videos and then take quiz. I just don't think people... I think people get some of that knowledge, but I don't think they take very much action on it. And so some of the stuff that David and Tiago are doing with cohort-based courses, and before them that Seth Godin was doing, to be honest. I've studied that model for a long time, and I think there's a lot of merit there and kind of working in public. And I, I would love to have small cohorts of, of guys that go through this course that get their lives dialed in and then have a community on the back end where these guys can continue working together and also mentoring future cohorts that's something I'd really like to do if, if um, life works out. And so what, what do people need to do to be retweeted by Ryan Stevens? I'm a huge fan right now of like, so it was funny. I read an article by someone the other day and I can't recall who it was, but he was basically saying like, there's nobody original. Everybody's just, uh, which we just talked about this, but I love these like really great curations and distillations of longer form content I'm a busy father with a big job, with a side hustle. I don't have time to listen to Naval on Clubhouse for two hours. I don't. Um, right? Well, I guess some people can like listen in the background and work. That's not me. I can't stand external noise while I'm trying to do deep work. 
I don't even want like music on, but like, I really love these like distillations of longer form content. Like here's my favorite 10 takeaways from this like 800 page book, or here's, you know, like the best takeaways and the most applicable nuggets from this two hour conversation on clubhouse or, you know, David Perel does a great job of, he did one with the Bryson Day Shimbo, the successful PGA golfer of like all the ways that he's brought technology into golf. And it was just really fascinating look, long form, but I didn't have to read this like 5,000 page, like David's really well known for these really, really long essays. And like, bro, not only do I not have time to read that, but I can't stand reading anything that long on a computer screen. And I'm not going to kill like seven trees to print that. So for me, like a lot of the stuff I retweet is like these really incredible, and I can't think of his last name, but his name's Justin and he works at, at Gumroad now as a content guy. But he's one of the ones right now that's doing an incredible job of just like taking this really long form stuff and distilling it down to like the best takeaways. Justin Mikolai. Yes, I was going to pronounce it incorrectly, but he's doing a great job of that. So yeah, um, there's that. I also, I'm really, um, I love some of the wholesome stuff going around too, you know, around fatherhood and being a dad and just like really positive things right now. I think there's a lot of negativity and sometimes around some of the dialed in men stuff, I'm focusing on things that are negative about men in society. And so I just, I want to get away from that negativity. And so I really love Tyler Tot Tot. He did this really long one about like everything he learned from his father and it was just incredible. And, and so I really love that like good, wholesome stuff. Some of the stuff the, the Lambros are doing is fun and wholesome and just high energy. And I love that. And then I also love anything, anytime someone takes something that's really, really unique and applicable and distills it down to like, not just the tactics, but the strategies behind the tactics and do and Michael Pike, who we've had on here, they do some good stuff with that. Yeah, that's cool. And I think what you're also saying is that what I've also been seeing is that people on Twitter, if, if you want to grow, I think you really need to share things like that in threads. I did a bunch of threads lately. They really grew my account a lot. And I think that if you want to grow your account, you really have to show your value, get people through a story, and that that will resonate with people. They'll they'll see, hey, this guy Ryan, he knows his shit. Uh, I want to follow this guy instead of a platitude that anybody can tweet, and they're like, yeah, yeah, it's a good one. I'll like or I'll retweet, but then they'll just keep scrolling. And yeah, I think it's a funnel almost. And so I definitely think the once you get to a certain size, the platitudes definitely resonate. I don't want to say this in a way that's like negative, but it, it's people that are newer in this space. Like I think the platitudes resonate with, but you outgrow those pretty quickly. I think like you inherently understand the nature of the platitude. Sometimes no matter how far along your journey you are, it is a nice reminder. Let's throw some likes there or some retweets there. But I think at some point you outgrow that and you're really hungry for that, like more meaty content. And I think that's where those threads really help. And yeah, to your point, a lot of my most engaging stuff, I think, is my threads. I, I try to set time to write one a week. It doesn't always happen, but because it is like, you know, you really have to tell that story. And I think the best threads, each tweet within that thread can live on its own. And I think that gets pretty challenging. And so now all of a sudden you're spending like an hour and a half, right? Plus to like get this really nice. And you're like, shit, I should have just wrote a blog post. Though I'll say that a lot of time my threads have more impressions than my blog posts. So, and the good thing is, is you can repurpose and recreate all this. Like sometimes a thread's more off the cuff, but then you can take that thread, expound on it just a little bit. And now it's a blog post or it's a piece in your newsletter. And so I think that's the key too, is like 
you don't always have to recreate the wheel. You can, I've seen a lot of creators now doing this where Packy McCormick's newsletter, he's like, look, people told me I have to write shorter because people have less attention spans. Instead, I doubled down, I write even longer. But as a result of that, you know, it's tough to sit and consume. To my point about David's long essays. So he's like, so I do this podcast where I just read it to you. And he's like, then you can listen to it on the go. And he's like, my audio's not crisp. Like it's not good, but I just decided I needed to ship that. And so I, I respected and appreciated that. And I think I think thinking about all the different ways you can repurpose your content is a really powerful content strategy as well. Yeah, definitely. And that's very underrated. I don't do it often enough. And I think more people should do it because, you know, when you have a, a podcast episode or a blog, you can cut up and, and tweet about it. You can put it on LinkedIn. You can do so much stuff with it. Yeah, I know it's a lot of work on the editors too, but I think there's, I love that, I mean, Joe Rogan's the, he was the king. He does this a little less now that he's on Spotify, but he's so great at like taking these three hour interviews and saying, here's four compelling minutes and putting that on YouTube and using that to promote the longer interview. Because a lot of times they're extracting like some really great insight or some really powerful takeaway. And I think, you know, again, tough on the editors, but what a great way to promote that longer form content. Because I think people are reluctant to like, dive into something long form unless they like, Hey, I really want to listen to Zuby or I really want to listen to Dan go. If you don't have a relationship with that person, you're like, do I really want to dive into this? But if you get that little four minute nugget, you're like, Oh man, that was really compelling. Let's hear more about this. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good one. It's a good one. Hey man, Ryan, thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun. Where can people find you? The best place to find me is at Ryan Stevens on Twitter. If you want to read my writing, I write at ryanstevens.me. And that is a lot of distillations from books, from top performers, just lessons that I've taken away that might be applicable to other people, really a place for me to write and hone my thinking. And then as we've talked about throughout this, I'm at Dialed In Men, where I share lessons for men that are often broadly applicable to women on their careers, relationships, wealth, and wellness. Thanks, man. Yannick, I appreciate it. This was great, man. Thank you. That's a wrap on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next show. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave an iTunes review and give us a shout out on Twitter, sharing your favorite part of this episode. See you again next week.